John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This has been called God's greatest revelation. John 3.16, of course, has also been called the gospel in a nutshell or the gospel in miniature. This one verse contains enormous revelations about the gospel, about the heart of God, about the mind of God, about the will of God. These words were spoken to Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee, a doctor of the law of Moses. This was a person who would have completely understood Torah, Tanakh, Ketubim, Nebaim. That means all of the writings of all of the prophets. This one verse contains sufficient gospel truth that if believed and embraced, it can save you and save the world. John Phillips wrote, and I quote, it is probably an accident of translation that in the King James version of the Bible, John 3:16 has exactly 25 words. The very center word is the word son. Thus, all the truth of the text finds its center in him. The word and thoughts either march resolutely towards him or radiate majestically from him. However, this fact of translation came about, it perfectly illustrates the position that God has given to his son. Jesus is the center of everything. God has no plans, no purposes for men which do not center in the person of his son, unquote. This one verse tells us about God's love for God so loved the evidence of God's love. He gave the purpose of God's love should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is the first verse that we learn as a child. It is the last verse. That a Bible teacher wants to preach on. You want to know why? Because it is so big. It is so enormous. That whatever you try to say about it falls short. G. Campbell Morgan said that, quote, this is a text I've never attempted to preach on, though I've gone around it. It's too big. When I have read it, there's nothing else to say. If we only knew how to read it so as to produce a sense of it in the ears of people, there would be nothing left to preach about. G. Campbell Morgan, by the way, is one of the most famous Bible teachers who's ever lived. Paul wrote that God chose the instrument of preaching to be the tool and the mechanism whereby the gospel of hope could be presented. Perhaps like Morgan, I should have just simply skipped the verse. I know that I can't do it justice. My only comfort is that I know that no one else can either. But let's give it a shot. A revelation of the heart of God. Look at the opening sentence. 
For God so loved the world that he gave. By the way, the the word for world is cosmos. For those of you who go shopping, and I know that you will, you'll wind up in King Supers or Albertsons or wherever it is that you shop. And as you're making your way through the line, they'll have magazines. One of them that's very popular is called Cosmopolitan. That's where we get this word. Cosmos is a word that was used in the ancient world to describe all of humanity. Men, women, children. This is all the world quite apart from God and quite apart from Christ. The word cosmos is a nonspecific word that really relates to all of humanity. And whenever you find this word, as it appears in the New Testament, it is always in the context of a world that stands in rebellion and opposition to God. This is the world against God. Does God love the world? When Jesus whispered these words into Nicodemus's ears, you have to understand how he would have taken this. In the world of the first century, the religious Jew would have believed that God loved him. When a Jew would wake up in the morning, he would pray this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I thank you, God, that I was born a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I was born a man and not a woman. You see, the religious Jew in the first century was convinced that God hated the non-religious Jew. And God hated the non-religious Gentile. We forget how shocking, how disturbing it is that God would love the vile sinner, that God would love the murderer, that God would love the immoral person, the wife beater, the child abuser, the prostitute, the thief, the drug dealer, the drug user, the bitter, the angry, the unlovely, the obstinate, the selfish, the greedy, the spiteful, the vengeful, the unbeliever. Nicodemus, religious Nicodemus, faithful to the traditions of Judaism, Nicodemus would have winced. He would have flinched when he heard these words. How? How is it possible that God could love someone like that? Like you, like me. Jesus, later on in John's gospel, in chapter 10, verse 16, will say, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. On what basis does God love? He loves by by virtue of his very nature. It says in first John, chapter four, verse eight. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The Bible doesn't say love is God, but rather that God is love. You remember, we, uh, at least I grew up hearing the words, what the world needs now is. Yes, love, sweet love. But you see, the world's idea of love is quite different from God's idea of love. 
In first John chapter four, verse 16, it says, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us, that God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. When I was an unbeliever walking quite apart from God and, and Christ, people would always come up to me and they, they would have that ridiculous statement. God loves you. Jesus loves you one way. And I thought, man, these people are so stinking weird. I remember at Christmas time, I was in the Inland Empire in a place called San Bernardino. And this guy who had just gotten out of Patton Hospital, this is a, a place for the mentally ill. He came out and he goes, God loves you. I decided to play some games with him. I said, how do you know? How do you know? And he says, because I believe in a cosmic God, you know, the ever present cosmic presence of a God superintending supernaturally. He is a loving God. He permeates the universe. He is all in all. And I said, so that doesn't prove anything except that you're not. But the right answer is found in Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the love of God isn't just a philosophical presupposition. It isn't just a theological nicety. It isn't a platitude. God acts. God demonstrates. God reveals his love because in real time and in real space, all of human history came to bear on the birth of Jesus Christ. He intervened. In human history, someone once wrote, love ever gives, forgives, outlives and ever stands with open hands. And while it lives, it gives. And this is love's prerogative to give, to give, to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus uses the verb love, by the way, in the prophetic past tense. It says, for God so loved the world. God's love is a proven love. It was proven in the past. And his deep concern and compassionate towards the people of Israel. Even in this passage, we're given a, a glimpse, a peek of the height and the depth and the length of God's love. How high, how deep. So loved. How long he gave the breath whosoever. If God's love is real, if God's love is real, it can't remain dormant. It won't remain silent. It can't be complacent. It won't be indifferent. It can't be inactive. If love actually exists, if it really, if it really exists, it must act. It must express itself. It must do something good. Love is loving. Love will have to make itself known. And therefore, God acts and, and God reveals. And the Bible teaches us that God actually, God specifically wants human beings to know his love. 
He wants to reach the entire world with his love. And I'm not talking about sloppy agape. I'm not talking about sentiment. Do you know what sentiment is? It's emotion without commitment. Sentiment is you go to a sad movie and you cry and you leave and your life is no different. You see the sad movie, you hear the Christmas songs, you hear these things and you experience these things, but it's emotion without commitment. And God doesn't love you that way. He doesn't love you with emotion without commitment. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Real love is familiar with real sacrifice. And some of you have experienced sacrifice. You understand what it means for a person to give in such a way that it results in the loss of their life. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says in this, the love of God was made known or manifested toward us that God, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 John the Apostle will later write, we love him because he first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave. The word gave is interesting in the original language. In the Greek language, it's the Greek word endokine. It has at least two meanings. I'm sure that it has more. But in the original language, the idea of giving is that God gave us his son into the world and he gave him in such a way that we might even rightfully use the expression he gave up. His son, we're not talking just simply about a priceless, sacrificial, costly gift. The father gave up his son. He allowed his son to leave his presence. He allowed his son to leave the majesty and the glory of heaven. He allowed his son to acquire a human nature and to die a criminal's death on a brutal and a cruel cross. And you may not understand it, but God gave his son to a wicked world, to a fallen world, to a depraved world, to a greedy world, to an immoral world, and to a sinful world. And that makes no sense to most of us. Why would you sacrifice something so valuable, something so meaningful for something so disgusting? We're hard pressed to contrast the purity and, and the perfection of Jesus with the impurity and the imperfection of a hostile and fallen race of sinful and fearful human beings. This last Friday, I was doing my radio program from Faith Bible Chapel. You'll remember that this time last week, they were in the aftermath of the shootings that took place on their campus. Two people were shot and killed and two more were injured. And when I was talking with the pastor, George Morrison, and I asked him about what happened. He said that that Saturday they have a Saturday evening service and he had preached his 
Christmas message. He had begun a series of Christmas messages. The first message was entitled, All I Want for Christmas is Hope. His message for today, All I Want for Christmas is Peace. Or joy, excuse me. All I want for Christmas is joy. Next week, all I want for Christmas is peace. He preaches his message. He goes home and about 1245, he gets a call in the night from the director. There's been a shooting here. Four people have been shot. That's all the information he has. Two people are dead and two people are injured. And the director goes to the hospital with the injured. And George goes To the police station with the 45 other students who were there. And he said, I stayed there all night. Until 10 minutes to nine. When we began our first service. On Saturday, I preached all I want for Christmas is hope. But you can rest assured that when I preached on Sunday morning, it was a different message. And it would have been preached in a different way. It's not wrong for people to want to have hope. But so many people want to have hope apart from Christ. So many people want to have peace apart from Christ. They want to have forgiveness apart from Christ. They want to have eternal life apart from Christ. But this is part of what you have to understand that God so loved the world that he gave his son. And it was in giving his son that you experience the possibility of hope and the possibility of peace and the possibility of joy and the possibility of forgiveness. Because there is no hope and there is no peace and there is no joy and there is no forgiveness apart from Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The Lord took the initiative to save the ungodly, to save the sinner, to save the wicked. For when we were still without strength, the idea is when we, when you and I were without strength, when we were unwilling, when we were unable, when we, we had no capacity to save ourselves, that's when Christ died. Think carefully. God, the loving God, the forgiving God, he doesn't hate you. Do you realize he doesn't have to be persuaded to love you? You see, he's not he's not like your father or your earthly mother or your earthly wife or your earthly husband or your earthly children or your earthly friends where sometimes you feel like you have to persuade them. You have to convince them. You have to talk them into loving you, but you don't have to persuade God to love you. He doesn't have to be convinced to love you and he doesn't have to be convinced to forgive you. Because everything that he's done in every way that he's acted. It's to accomplish your 
forgiveness and reconciliation to himself. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, when the Lord is speaking to the prophet and he says to the people, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. It isn't with the threat of hell. It is with the conviction of the possibility of love. What drew you to Christ? Was it the threat of hell hanging over your head? Or was it the possibility or was it the possibility, not even the probability, was it the possibility, not even the certainty, was it the possibility, was it the possibility that he could love someone like you? And you took a chance. We see the revelation of the heart of God. We see the revelation of the mind of God and the will of God. And look. The revelation regarding his son, God gave his only begotten son. God didn't simply give a revelation. He didn't simply give education. He didn't give a wealth of information. He didn't give you with a religious set of instructions, although he certainly gave a religious set of instructions to Moses. But the Bible says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What did the giving of the law accomplish? That what it accomplished is you wound up discovering something for yourself, that you're a lawbreaker. The very first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the moment you decide not to, the moment that you let up for just one moment, the moment that you embrace one selfish thought, one selfish deed, then you have broken the commandment. Not to mention lying and not mention cheating and stealing. And the Old Testament made it clear that if you offend in one area of the law, then you're guilty in all areas of the law. God didn't simply give religion. He gave his son. And look what it says. His only begotten son. The word is monogenesis. Or monogenous. As a matter of fact, that word mono means singular. And we get the word gene and genetic from the other one because it's talking about a class or a a description. It means unique. It means one of a kind. It means one and only. The word is also translated only begotten in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, where it's used of Abraham's son, Isaac, the son of promise. We know that Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. We know after the death of Sarah, he embraced another wife. Her name was Keturah. And Keturah went on and had several more children. So we know that Abraham had other children. But what is he talking about? Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 22, when the Lord says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love to the place where I will show you. He's talking about the uniqueness. W.E. Vine wrote, quote, he was the sole representative of the being and character of the one who sent him. The Christ did not 
become, but necessarily and eternally is the son. He, a person, possesses every attribute of pure Godhead. Jesus, the son, is eternally the son of God. And at his birth, when he invaded time and space and he was born of a woman, he acquired a second nature. He is the only being in all of the universe who is one person with two distinct, indivisible, immutable, unchangeable natures. Now, Jesus is both God and he will forever be human. He is both. Unchanging and unchangeable. The expression also suggests the thought of deepest affection, as in the case of the Old Testament word. There's an Old Testament Hebrew word, yakid. It's variously translated the only one in Genesis chapter 22, speaking of Abraham and Isaac. Only son, Jeremiah 6, 26. Only beloved, Proverbs 4, 3. And in Psalm 22, 20, it's translated darling. Isn't that sweet? How can he be both? A guy named Ari Wittenbogard, he wrote, and I quote, when scientists were trying to understand the essence of light to which Jesus compares himself, they did some tests to, to reveal whether light was either waves or particles. Much to their dismay, some tests proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that, that light was waves, while other tests proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that light was particles. Battles were waged and, and many spent their breath trying to convince the other of something that didn't exist. Light was both particle and wave. And because it was both particle and wave, it was... Neither. It was in a new class, all of its own. It is comparable to nothing. On top of that, it was discovered that life always light always travels at, a, at the same speed. You can't slow it down. You can't make it hurry. And if that wasn't weird enough, it appears that light speed that at that speed all distances become zero and time comes to a standstill. That means that at light speed, there are no meters and there are no seconds and there is no place where speed, where seconds and speed, because the speed of light isn't really a speed. In fact, if we define space as that place where all things that have a size live and time as that process that makes sure that everything happens so that everything doesn't happen at once, then we can say that light sits on the edge of space and time. It sits in both and neither. What? And then he writes, then when we realize that light consists of photons, which are units of energy and everything that exists in space time comes from energy and that atoms are held together into objects and planets and stars by photons. The following text help us understand why Jesus is monogenous. In John 8, 12, then Jesus spoke, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Colossians 1.16 For by him, speaking of Jesus, for by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things exist. So when someone says to you, well, he's just he's the son of God, like everyone's the son of God. No. Not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> In John. Um, as a matter of fact, it says in Acts chapter four, verse 12, there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. It says in Acts chapter four, verse 12, there aren't multiple saviors for multiple people groups. Buddha is not the savior for the people of India. Confucius is not the savior for the people of China. The prophet Muhammad is not the prophet of the people of the Arab peoples. There are not multiple saviors for multiple people groups. There's only one savior given by God so that human beings could be saved. Dr. Walter Wilson tells the story of a woman who had attended one of his meetings and waited after service for spiritual help. And when he asked her if she could quote any part of the scripture, she said that when she was a little girl in vacation Bible school, she learned John 316. And he said, do you think you could say it for me? And she said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. But have everlasting life. And Dr. Wilson smiled. Dr. Wilson asked her this question. He said. Tell me something. Why do you think God. Forgot. His son. And she looked at him and she said. I don't know the answer. And Dr. Wilson said. God. Forgot his son. So that he could remember you. Isn't that sweet? Instead of correcting her. He corrects her thinking in her heart and then he proceeded to tell her about Jesus and how Jesus loves her and died for her and that God hasn't forgotten her and that God is willing to save her. And, and then he proceeded to lead her to, to the Lord. We see the heart of God and, and the mind of God and, and the will of God. And, and look what it says, a revelation of the mind of God that whoever Believes. The word whoever means whoever. Jew, Gentile, male, female, 
every person in every age. This is the condition of salvation. And the word believe is a very interesting word in the original language. It's the Greek word pistis. It means to trust in. It means to rely on. It means to cling to. It means more than just to intellectually acknowledge like some fact of history. It means more than, well, I believe that Abraham Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater on April 14th, 1865. I believe that George Herbert W. Walker is the president of the United States. It's more than just the acknowledgement of a historical set of circumstances. It is the condition of salvation whereby you trust, you rely, you cling, you embrace. In Mark chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. It's the same word. C.S. Lewis wrote. You never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death for you. Do you believe the car will start? Do you believe that it will drive? Do you place your full confidence and assurance of the weapon that you have in your hand, that it will fire during the time of need. There was a very famous acrobat who lived at the turn of the past century. And one day he took a high wire, a strong piece of steel, and he suspended it over Niagara Falls and he walked across the wire and the people were cheering wildly. And then he got a wheelbarrow and he asked the question, do you think I can take this wheelbarrow across the wire? And they all started clapping and shouting and screaming. We believe you can do it. We believe you can do it. And he walked across the wire with the wheelbarrow and then he came back. And he says, do you believe I can do it again? And they go, yes, we believe you can do it again. And he goes, well, you get into the wheelbarrow. Yeah, it got really quiet. But that's what God wants you to do. When Nicodemus is hearing the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. He is he's extending a conditional invitation to get in the wheelbarrow. And look what it says. Should not perish. But have everlasting life. This is a revelation of the will of God. The salvation of God is conditional. Whoever believes the salvation of God is to keep men and women from perishing because the salvation of God is to provide eternal and everlasting life. It is forgiveness and life that's found in Jesus. And there's an alternative to eternal life. And the alternative to eternal life is that word perishing. And the word perishing, by the way, is the Greek word apolatei. It meant to be lost. Not like Wednesday nights on TV. Not the program lost. 
It means to be utterly and completely and hopelessly lost. It means to perish. It means to utterly destroy. It meant spiritual destitution. It meant utter deprivation. It meant cut off. We're given a clue to the meaning of the word in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11, where it says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, same word, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. The word perish denotes the final condition of the soul, the awful state of those who are filthy still under the eye of God. But that isn't God's first choice. That's not God's will. The Bible says in Second Peter, chapter three, verse nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Same word. But that all should come to repentance. But the process of perishing is taking place. That's why the invitation of John three sixteen is universal. And that's why it hinges not on your religious presupposition. It doesn't rest on a theological or a philosophical set of rules and regulations. It is an invitation to accept the son and those who do so become heirs. It says of everlasting life. It's a spiritual dimension. Perish means to be lost spiritually. Perish means without purpose, without meaning, without significance, without peace, without hope. We all die. We all face judgment. We're in the process of condemnation. We're in this process of continual separation from God and from our loved ones. But that's not God's first choice. In order to keep human beings from perishing, God sent his only begotten son. When I was a kid growing up, we would watch W.C. Fields movies. Some of you remember he had a long hat. He was a lifelong atheist. And the day that he died on his deathbed, he asked to be brought a Bible and he was reading the Bible. And someone said to, to W.C. Fields, they said, what are you doing reading the Bible? You don't believe that. And he goes, "Ah, oh, yes, looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes. I wonder if you ever made it to John chapter 3, verse 16. You're going to hear this verse a lot in the next few days. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came so that you wouldn't have to perish. By the way, the last two words of verse 16, Zoin, Aonin, 
It means life and it means eternal. Aonin is the adjective everlasting. It comes from the noun aeon. It was used by the ancient Greeks to describe a lifetime or an age. But then we imported the word and we adopted into our own language. We get the word aeon from it. As a matter of fact, the Greek writers like Socrates and Plato used the word to contrast Another word, chronos, which speaks of days and months and years, the movement of the people in time and space, so much so that aeonion came to mean the word eternal, everlasting, infinity. In verse 15, the word translated eternal and here is translated everlasting. It's the exact same word. Jesus says that everlasting life isn't simply living forever and ever. He brings to our attention that it means loving and having a relationship and friendship with him. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Jesus defines eternal life, not simply in terms of living forever somewhere, but of loving someone forever. And he makes himself the basis of that love. In John's gospel, the word aeonios appears some 17 times and not more than six times in any other New Testament book. In the King James Version of the Bible, it's translated eternal in 42 of the 71 times that it appears. The quality of life finds its expression in friendship and relationship. Our lives begin with God and then it ends with everlasting life. It begins with the one who has no beginning and then it ends in that place that has no end. Do you remember what Nicodemus said at the beginning of the chapter? How can these things be? How can this be? Nicodemus, God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, That he gave the greatest act, his one and only son, the greatest gift that whosoever the greatest opportunity believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest attraction shall not perish the greatest promise. But this is the greatest difference. I can't wait to start my book, The Great Butts of the Bible. Have the greatest certainty. Eternal life. The greatest possession. F.M. Lehman's great hymn about the love of God. You may know this, but the last verse of his great hymn wasn't written by Lehman. It was found scrawled on a wall by a man in the last moments of his life. He was in an insane asylum. He apparently came to understand the love of God shortly before his death. The hymn goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. 
It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchments made and every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's too, too big. Do you want hope? Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want forgiveness? Do you want eternal life? Joy. Peace. Hope. Forgiveness. Is in his son. You can't have one without the other. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you love us. Lord, you don't need persuading. We don't have to talk you into it. We don't have to convince you to love us. You've demonstrated your love towards us in Jesus. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person who that there is a profound and a and a conspicuous hole inside of their heart, a conspicuous lack of joy, a conspicuous lack of peace, a conspicuous lack of hope, a a conspicuous lack of forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would turn to you in faith and simplicity and humility and that they would trust you and rely on you and cling to you. Do you need to have a right relationship with God through Jesus? It's easy to do. You simply pray a simple prayer. Confess your sin. Embrace him as your savior. It truly is that simple. Have you experienced the love of God? The forgiveness of God? The peace of God? The joy of God? The hope that's found in God? To come to Jesus. It's easy to do. Just reach out to Him. Pray to Him. Confess your sin. Trust Him completely. Embrace all that He has for you. And then you'll know the love of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.